This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Good morning. It's Sterling Fox sitting in for the vacationing Jill Bennett to talk a little G7 and uh, other international matters as, of course, President Trump has now left Canada and headed to the Far East where he is going to meet with Korean North Korean leader Kim Jong-un tomorrow. And, of course, that is a much-hyped gathering of two leaders of countries whose leaders have actually never sat down in a neutral area before. But back to Canada and the G7 and to talk to, uh, uh, by way of analysis of both the events of this weekend here and what's to come in the week ahead. It's a pleasure to welcome back Dr. Jeffrey Myers from Thompson River University Law School to the program. Uh, Jeff is a former UBC professor and is also a a practitioner of the law in both Canada and the United States. So he brings uh, immense uh, wealth of knowledge to the conversation. Jeff, good morning. Hey, I should say former practitioner, uh, and for very short uh, periods at that, really, more of an academic, suck up here in the ivory tower. So if you're looking for a good lawyer, you're thinking about calling me. Call me, I'll give you a name, but it won't be me. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But you have, you have, you were licensed in the oh, United yeah, States, years, correct? I practiced for two years in New York, so, yeah. uh, but, and I, and I keep my good standing with the bar because, I think it's 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 good to be uh, to be to be a somewhat of a lawyer. Sure, okay. <laughs> but I'm not practicing, and uh, certainly not that experience as a lawyer, more of an academic. Okay, so let's take a look at this yeah. uh, G7 gathering at Charlevoix out there in uh, in the the hinterland in uh, mm. outside Quebec City. With well, that's the... controversial in and unto itself. Eh? Interesting. A lot of the anti globalization activists and the young people and the environmentalists and the regular folk who do like to uh, protest at these things, and for often for very sympathetic reasons, have started complaining that they've been taking these meetings out of the major centers Mm -hmm. and locating them in these fortified, you know, resort towns in the middle of nowhere, and that prevents uh, freedom of expression and prevents sort of free access by those who have alternative agendas. So it's the fact that it's in the hinterlands is is something that is itself controversial. I suppose so. I can remember an Alberta G7 gathering in Kananaskis, which of course is up in the gorgeous spot up in the mountains uh, in the foothills just uh, west of Calgary. But again, uh, not exactly around the corner and up the street. But then these are done the other side of that coin. The security experts will tell you this is there's done for quite a valid reason. All of these people are high level four four and five star security risks and need Mm -hmm. to be protected. Yeah. So let's talk about the topics discussed at the meeting. It was set up to be, Jeff, basically six versus one. As Trump levied these uh, tariffs, new tariffs, or actually reinstalled tariffs on steel and aluminum products in both Canada and the European Union, mm-hmm. uh, of course, the leaders of those six countries affected by these tariffs or the resumption of the tariffs are more than a little ticked. So the, the, the press spin going into the meeting is it's six versus one. And Trump is going to get a drubbing from angry allies. And and I don't know what your observation of the um, summit as it uh, unfolded, but my sense is that that was an accurate prediction of what would, in fact, happen um, at the summit, which, of course, Mr. Trump left in a fit of pique uh, early uh, after having skipped very um, sort of poignantly, I guess, probably the wrong word, but at least a sort of high degree of meaning and symbolism, the sessions on gender and the environment, which, of course, was rude to, in diplomatic sense, to Canada, because we were the uh, hosts, and that was our agenda that we said, and normally the president of the United States and all the other primary individuals, heads of states and government, would be at all the sessions in sort of a a seriously engaged way. He, He was not of course, there was a number of photos which were released, both by, you know, there was some by Mr. 
Trudeau's prime minister, uh, uh, photographer, some by the White House uh, photographer and others by other world leaders, showing interesting, but perhaps it's not clear how staged really are. Some of them at least look like they were quite candid. Photographs of the various leaders surrounding Mr. Trump, including ones with Mr. Trump and his arms crossed, right? And looking at it, it sort of being unclear whether he was, you know, um, looking like he was under fire. Um, it is very interesting to watch how the body language in those in that photo was. You saw also Shinzo Abe, who's the Japanese minister of Japan, yeah. arms crossed. But then you see Angela Merkel sort of leaning in, and it she appears to be, um, at least this is what you're led to imagine when you look at some of these pictures, sort of putting it to him, right? And that was the sort of that was the sort of same narrative coming from Mr. Macron and from uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, of course, as well. The only one who sort of differed in that was uh, Giuseppe Conte, who's the new and very vulnerable um, and uh, inexperienced and also populist uh, Italian prime minister who immediately out of the gates agreed with Mr. Trump's in sort of disruptive comment at the outset of the meeting that that, that uh, Russia should be readmitted and the G8 reconstituted. Right. He was the only one who he immediately agreed with that. Well, this guy had but been elected for, what, four or five days and he's off to a G7 conference? And, uh, so well, I mean, it can happen. I mean, it can happen. He's you know, so it's, we can talk about him as an interesting figure. Mm. And in Italy is an important country in many ways, which, like Canada, is a sort of the smallest, is tied sort of for the, of the big economies, the smallest of them. And it's sort of, um, you know, Canada and Italy kind of play an over uh, heavier role than you might otherwise expect, particularly because of their place in the G7. But the G7 is looking in big trouble. I mean, this notion of the G6 plus one, right. the plus one being the United States, I mean, they used to talk about the G7 plus one, the plus one being Russia, until it actually became the, the G8. G8. Yeah, but in the last few years, honestly, I think um, the um, the importance of and the centrality of the of the G7, uh, now the G7, earlier even the G8, started to give way with the development of the G20, which is a larger deliberative forum which involves um, emerging powers and also non-Western democracies. Right. So, it's it's the world, uh, the global system, the uh, way in which states organize themselves um, at the sort of elite level for summit demo, uh, diplomacy is changing in a way that it, it, it is significant and it's changing the post-war order that's been in place for 70 years. And it's not changing the way people had anticipated it would change. It's interesting. You know, we had an analyst on with, again, with cross-border experience like you on the show Mm -hmm. yesterday talking about Mm -hmm. this. And his comment was that this whole six versus one setup actually, Mm -hmm. actually played perfectly into Donald Trump's hand. Why? Because he can stand up and say, look, you know, these guys are giving me grief because Mm -hmm. I'm fighting for Americans and American Mm -hmm. jobs. I'm doing something that Americans should have been doing at these gatherings for decades, and it's about bloody time. So he can go home to his base and go, do you see what I did? Do you see how I stood up for you against those rascals from around the world when they didn't like what we finally decided was important to do? Mm -hmm. And his base is is going to go ballistic. Absolutely. Way to go, Don. So uh, by by that kind of spin and setup, they essentially played perfectly into his hand. You know, I, actually, I think that's that's not, you know, there's no question that that is his strategy. That is the narrative he's pursuing with his base. And he was able to do the map, the electoral map uh, in 2016 in such a way as really just to have his base 
um, you know, sufficiently distributed in such a way. And again, it, it's a, also a long product of gerrymandering of some of these congressional lines. Sure. So, yeah. and, and also uh, and also a long product of sort of gaming out the electoral college system. But he's able he's going to just ba- hone in on his base. And no matter what he says, this is the type of red meat they want, whether it's true or not. The Canadian government, for its part, has pursued a reasonably good, smart, long-term strategy. I don't have a lot of criticism of it. I mean, what they have done is to um, emphasize to members of Congress the importance of the trading relationship with Canada and the military relationship with Canada and the security relationship with Canada and the cultural relationship with Canada, the historical relationship, et cetera, et cetera. Done that with uh, Congress and then in individual states, particularly where Canada is a major trading partner, because it's not relative to the U.S. as a whole, but it is in a concentrated way with certain states. Exercise, you know, um, diplomacy and, and, and bound the link. So the idea being that Canada has been has understood the fact that the relationship between Canada and the United States is not based on any personal acrimony between the Prime Minister and the President. I mean, it has an effect, it's symbolic, but it it doesn't govern the relationship as much deeper than that, and it involves relationships between citizens and between organizations and whatnot. It's not going to be undermined by what's obviously just a very erratic um, president. So I think the Prime Minister, and particularly Christian Freeland, have been very effective on the post. She's very effective in particular on U.S. news media speaking to um, elites in the United States. This isn't the um, first time we've seen a Canadian administration uh, reacting to a volatile United States president who shows up, at, or not necessarily on our turf, but who makes outrageous claims about unfairness and all the rest of it. Uh, so basically, in the past, what the Canadian governments have done is just sort of put your head down and realize that the, the maximum this guy's going to be around is eight years. With just a little bit of luck, it'll be four, and then there'll be somebody else to deal with and life will go on so we just got to get through this period with our heads still screwed on straight well i mean look i think for starters there are certainly lots of historical um, examples of you know periods of rockiness in the mm-hmm. relationship between canada and the united states you bet but the le- but the way the language um, that Mr. Trump used in regard to at leaving the meeting where he said that Mr. Tr- Mr. Trudeau had been his quote said his Trump his sorry his uh, his tweet said very honest and weak um, very dishonest you know, very, and very weak. dishonest yeah, and weak, yeah. right sort of accused him of mendacity that's yeah. how um, Evan Dwyer at the CBC uh, described it. Um, and, you know, that's a serious thing in diplomatic circles. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, it's not a surprise or anything like that. But, I mean, you remember that the different leaders of the G20 had uh, taken a different sort of approach with or strategy with Mr. Trump. I mean, like Merkel had been stern from the beginning. Um, uh, you know, uh, Ms. May had sort of wavered a little bit. Uh, Mr. Macron, though, had reached out in a friendly fashion. Trudeau reached out in a friendly fashion. Shinzo Abe had gone, like, overboard to befriend uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, but no matter what your strategy is, you find yourself on the same end of these uh, these tariffs, and you find yourself on the same, and you find yourself being challenged for you know what you have um, given to the United States in exchange for security guarantees for 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 seven decades. Mm-hmm. That's just not the way the Allies are used to being spoken to by the United States. But the truth is, the hard truth is that this is a kind of um, threat to um, institutions like the G7, their importance and. You know, that's that's a big change, and people ought to be very tuned to what's going on. And Mr. Trump calling on the way into the meeting for Russia to be readmitted against yeah. the will of everybody else except Italy, and then on leaving early on the way out and with a slew of uh, kind of very undiplomatic language for the summit's host, 
I mean, those are, you know, th- those are serious things. And the damages that's done will be re- try well, Some future president and administrations will reverse it to some extent. But it's, it's not an insignificant blip. And I, I really don't think there's quite any, even the relationship between Mr. Trudeau Sr. and Richard Nixon, which was notoriously acrimonious. It the one between was. Mr. Kretschmer and, and, and Mr. Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, this is different in the sense that this is actually going to the core of the economic relationship. It's not... It's not just a foreign policy difference, um, and Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Trump is is not committed in the, to these institutions, right? And I don't want to make the I don't want listeners to think I'm uncritical about these institutions. As I, you know, began with you this morning, I think you know, for example, people who protest in many cases have a very sympathetic cases, and there's all kinds of problems with the neoliberal systems of governance that we have in our globalized society. But what we're seeing is a is a is a backward movement um, in terms of uh, the way in which Mr. Trump is treating us and a willingness to sort of really disregard any striving for democracy. I mean, remember, G7 is different than other organizations, even different than the U.N. Security Council in that it's not there are no the countries that are in it are supposed to be, you know, true democracies, not democracies that are evolving or emerging or tenuous, but actually established democracies. Absolutely. Now, Jeff, I need to take a break. And you mentioned very dishonest and weak, the insult mm-hmm. that Mr. Trump leveled from Air Force One uh, flying over Canada on the way to Singapore after mm-hmm. leaving the G7. Now, mm-hmm. just leave behind a few insults to uh, yeah. to really show our gratitude for your hospitality. Insults are, are, are a sort of way of doing business for Donald Trump. And let's just take a, well, before we take the break, just to, to chew on for a couple mm-hmm. of minutes, insults. Let's just think about other insults to other world leaders. Oh, hmm. how about Little Rocket Man? And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. he's on his way to Singapore to meet that nice man, Kim Jong-un, whom he hasn't mm-hmm. insulted for weeks. So we'll talk about that and the likelihood of some measure of success for the summit between North Korea and the United States. Good morning, it's Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on this Sunday morning, 12 degrees in downtown Vancouver under quite cloudy skies at 7.51. On the line from Thompson Rivers University up in Kamloops, Professor Jeffrey Myers from the law school up there. We're talking about, well, now here we have Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump now both in Singapore. This will be the first summit of its kind between a leader of North Korea and a sitting U.S. president. The whole world is now watching this one. Jeff, what are reasonable expectations to to have going into this a reasonable expectations are um, for some kind of spectacular failure <laughs> okay because uh, north korea the united states wants the complete denuclearization of north korea and it seems highly unlikely kim jong-un is going to go okay sure right um well i mean look there, the you know, there's all kinds of um, experts, and 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 I'm sure your listeners will have um, heard them, and I, you probably have had some on the air uh, at CKNW, you know, who about, about North Korea, right? And in, in the particular in its particular form, uh, it's the conduct of its regime, the so-called uh, hermit kingdom, mm-hmm. very mysterious, right? But there's been some good reporting, and there's certain patterns of behavior in terms of at least how the the governing clique rules, uh, governing clique conducts diplomacy and they've had you know they haven't had a high level meeting like this before but but north korea has often sort of cooperated and reached out diplomatically uh and then immediately pulled back uh in the last minute um the uh, the understanding is is that the that the government wants to you know it wants to appear legitimate in the sense of a, as a global player so obviously it's a major coup to be able to have a president come and do it what a face-to-face summit no it suggests question. your equals yeah, right? You're right so it's a big it's a big 
symbolic thing again in 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 diplomacy. And again, Donald Trump's White House and his administration's diplomacy is not subtle. It's like a baseball bat. It's the same thing we saw happening in Charlevoix, right? It's like, okay, he came in and said, why don't you let the Russians back in? He's coming here and he's doing this high stakes uh, meeting. He, he, you know, but what's going to come out of it is, I mean, is there going to be a Nobel Prize for, for Donald Trump? Unlikely. The reason that that's being, you know, joked about by him or not even joked about seriously considered is because of that preemptive Nobel Prize that, um, you know, Barack Obama received, which, I mean, I think in the end he probably deserved. People were very upset about it. Some people were upset about it at the time. He's mentioning that in the way he does always to withdraw attention from or deflect. Um, but no, I mean, it's unlikely he's going to be able to achieve any kind of objective here. Well, and, as, as you said, yeah. though, North Korea is very anxious to get back into the game. They become so isolated, you know, against self-inflicted wounds, to be sure. But the world community really has cut them off. And they're desperate to reintegrate for a, a number of reasons, not the least of which is being somewhat better able to feed its population, let alone any other details. So it's important that they they do something they make some kind of concession to allow uh, the borders to open at least partially to get again back into the game what concessions might they consider actually giving up um well it's, it's really hard to say i mean a lot of things have sort of floated out and been leaked but like let's be clear i mean the stronger the uh, Russia and China are the strong, the more secure actually North Korea's position is. And, you know, it's only when North Korea becomes a problem in some way for China, which it can in various ways, that, that the real pressure is applied to it. I mean, certainly, yes, you're right. I mean, it's not un, it's not insignificant. The, the sanctions that have been placed are obviously crippling and hurting the North Korean people. Only a minute so, here, Jeff. Yeah, so I, I suppose that, you know, arguing, seeing what America could do to alleviate some of those sanctions, but in return, what would Korea do? Well, what, uh, from what I understand, you know, what the United States is asking is complete denuclearization. Yeah, yeah. And the question is, would that be verifiable? Or would it look something, and, and if it could be, the best case scenario is it would look something like the Iran agreement, which Trump just, just ripped up. That's right, yeah. So it's like there's no, there's no guiding, you know, intellect or conscious mind um, you know, behind all of this. It's just a, and so there's no way the outcome is going to be to sort of solve a bedeviling uh, foreign policy problem. Just like recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel isn't going to automatically solve the the Middle East peace crisis. It's just going to inflame it. Right? I doubt, I doubt there will style. be a Nobel Prize as, a, as an outcome of this. And I, by the way, am one who still insists Barack Obama got one for doing bloody nothing. But that's a whole other conversation for another day. We thank but, you for your time this morning. Good to speak to you again. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.